thank you for the welcome that you have given me corporately and also for the welcome that individuals have already given me to being here with you this morning. And a particular thank you to those who prayed for me first thing. Thank you. Let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer before we just turn to this Bible passage. Almighty God, we praise and thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for all that he did through his life and death and resurrection. And as we reflect now on these encounters and Jesus' sayings, we ask that you'll take my words, take the thoughts of each of our hearts, shape them, use them, that we may understand more fully what it means to follow the living Lord day by day. We ask this in his name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, coming to Meadgate to preach, like a visit to any church, presents its own challenge. And the challenge, really, for me this morning is that Tim has already told you the direction of travel about how we stay on the path, about our discernment and commitment to that path. And yet, when I look and I hear the stories of Meadgate, when I visit this place, there is a question, what is it that you as a body and as individuals need to know about discipleship and commitment to following where Jesus has called you to go? I say that because you are a church that is known for raising vocations. A church where people hear God speaking to them and respond with their lives. A church that is known for its passion for engaging with the wider community that live in the streets around this church. And you're known as a church that has a vision. A vision for who God wants you to be and how God wants you to serve. And that is reflected in the decision to purchase these buildings. Last Sunday, Tim came to me with the paperwork to sign off the paperwork that needs to go to the Diocesan Board of Finance. That was a no-brainer because you'd made those decisions prayerfully, thoughtfully, reflectively and worked out what was possible. Then 
I got a call from the director of finance. And he said, Elizabeth, you've signed this paperwork, but could you write something to say why? Why you're supporting this? So, what did I say? Would you like to know? <laughs> this could be really embarrassing, couldn't it? I, I, I won't read it all out to you, but I just said I've been happy both to support and to, and to sign the application, and I hope the committee will recognise and support the vision and also recognise the commitment of the incumbent, the wardens, the PCC, to enabling this vision to become a reality. I'll give it to you. You already have a vision. You already know about attending to God. So what is it that I can say to you this morning? And I just want to spend a few moments unpacking this passage. And it will be a passage you know well. You've just heard it read. So it's Luke. Luke 9 and just the end of that chapter. I want to explain where it fits in Luke's gospel. Luke 9 is a turning point in the Gospel of St. Luke. Luke makes it really clear that he is writing about the things people need to know about Jesus. But in 9, the tone of Luke's writing changes. And it changes in verse 51 when Jesus turns his face, his direction, towards Jerusalem. He is aware of what he has been called to do, and in obedience to God the Father, he turns his face. Now, he doesn't actually get to Jerusalem till chapter 19. So between chapter 9 and chapter 19, what is Jesus doing, having set his face? Well, Luke differs from Matthew and Mark at this point because Jesus begins to teach in a very challenging way what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. And that is through encounters with individuals, through people who ask him questions, but he sets out the challenge. And I don't know how you felt as you heard Anita reading the last part of chapter 9. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let the dead Bury the dead. If you put your hand to the plough, you can't turn around. They're very, very uncomfortable and challenging statements about what it means to follow Jesus. And if these were the only statements like this, 
we could put them to one side, but I don't think we can. However, I've looked at various commentaries on this passage, and I can say they're less than helpful on what to do with these verses. Maybe we're tempted to just say, well, he didn't mean it literally. He didn't mean we couldn't pay attention to our families. He didn't mean we had to just keep going in a straight direction and not do anything else. Surely he doesn't mean that if we follow him, we don't have a home, a roof over our heads. But that's what Jesus actually says in those verses to those who express a desire to follow him. And to show that I'm not just saying this is the only bit that Jesus says that, if you look at the beginning of chapter 9, where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, look what he says. He says, don't take a purse, don't take a bag, don't take any sandals, and don't stop to say hello to anybody on the way. It's pretty uncompromising, isn't it? And if we read on immediately after the end of chapter 9 to the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 or 72, depending on the version of the Bible you've got, and he says a very similar thing. Don't take a bag, don't take a purse, don't take a spare set of sandals, Don't stop on the way. So there's something in chapter 9 and chapter 10 that's saying about the way in which we follow God and how we make the choices. Now, I've got children that are young adults and they're busy setting up their homes And the thing that has struck me compared to when my husband and I set up home is the need for possessions we have now. It's huge. It is vast. We think we are entitled to all sorts of things. It is the culture that shapes us. And it is very hard for us as 21st century Christians to see where it is that God is speaking and where we're resisting because we've been shaped by the culture around us. But Jesus is asking those people who asked him in that chapter, to make a really, really tough choice. A tough choice that will be costly for them if they're going to follow him. So we have to get our heads around it because following Jesus is actually about following him. It's not about the language we use. It's not about saying the right things. It's about how we take the next step on the journey? And what are the things that are going to stop us taking the next step on the journey? 
To explain what I mean, the teachings of Jesus are so different from any other teachings. I don't know if you've noticed in bookshops where there used to be a religious section, there's now sort of mind, body, spirit, or well-being. And in those books, there are lots of philosophies and teachings from all sorts of different spiritual and non-spiritual backgrounds that teach you about how you can live a life. Following Jesus' teachings is not like that. It's about putting our feet in the footsteps of Jesus and walking the path that he walked, which might be very costly. It is almost certainly likely to ask us to step outside our comfort zones. And it will mean we'll do things differently. Differently from the way we've perhaps done them in the past. I, was very, I just want to divert a little bit because um, the reading, when you gave your words of knowledge, one of the passages was Psalm 91. Um, Psalm 91 is a very significant passage for me. But it's a significant passage because it was important to my grandfather. And so I just want to tell you the story of that, and then I'll come back to the Luke. In 1994, when my grandfather was 97, he had a stroke about six weeks before he died. He'd been a very fit elderly gentleman. And I sat with him, and he was talking about his funeral, and he was talking about his life and his forthcoming death. And he had two passages of scripture he wanted read. And Psalm 91 was one of those. And it was a passage of scripture he'd carried through his life. His parents had been committed Christians, his mother had been converted by Moody and Sankey Mission in London. Her father had brought her down from the East Midlands down to London to hear them. And prayer and reading of scripture shaped their family life. And as a young man, as he set off to serve his country in the First World War, his father at the breakfast table, read Psalm 91. My grandfather served also in the Second World War. And he lived to be old. But his testimony was to the faithfulness of God to whatever happened around him. The faithfulness of God. He didn't talk about his own faithfulness, he talked about God's faithfulness. So when we go back and we look at Luke 10 and we see what Jesus is asking us to do, we have to hear behind it the faithfulness of God. The God who sent Jesus, his only son, not only to live as one of us, 
but to walk on that very difficult road to the cross. We know the agony that Jesus faced in the garden as he really began to realize the implications of what that death would mean. We know the suffering it cost him. But his way was in total obedience to what God had called him to do. And Jesus' challenge to us is just that. Take no bag. Don't take some second pair of sandals. Don't even talk to those around. Don't get diverted from what you've been asked to do, but stay on course. That final image is really, really important. When I was in Bangladesh in the 1990s um, with Tear Fund, I saw many people plowing with oxen, with two oxen, a man walking behind with a simple plow and a yoke over the oxen's necks. I was reminded of that earlier this year when I went to Kenya. And in a very different part of the world, very different soil and weather conditions, I saw a man doing just that. Two beasts yoked together and a plow. It's not something that's familiar to us, so we struggle to imagine it. We may have seen it on a documentary on television. Two animals yoked together with someone walking behind. And the plow, as it's pulled, turns the soil over. The animals walk in a straight line if the guy just gently steers his hand on the plow. At the other end of the field, they turn and come back in a straight line. But what Jesus is describing is what happens if the guy looks round to admire how straight he's plowed the field. As he looks back, the plow will weave and it's no longer the straight path. Now, you and I, a similar thing really would be, if you will have seen it, somebody on their mobile phone in the car, the distraction of the conversation, and the car weaves. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not letting ourselves be distracted from the thing that he's called us to do which is to step in his footsteps. Elsewhere in scriptures, and again you referred to it this morning in one of your readings, which is cast your burdens on me. The description from Jesus. And Jesus is quoted in Matthew 11 saying that. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, going back to those two oxen, if you are a Bangladeshi farmer or a Kenyan farmer, you have two beasts who plow, who pull that plow. One is experienced and one may not be. The experienced beast 
helps the younger, inexperienced beast to learn. Jesus says to us, take my yoke, walk alongside me. And as you walk, you will learn about how to pull this plow and to make that furrow straight and firm. Jesus invites us to walk with him. That's each one of us, not those simply who hold leadership in the church or who wear a dog collar. That is an invitation for everyone. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So Jesus speaks. He speaks uncompromising. I don't know what the challenges and the dangers for you are, either as individuals or as a church. There are many things that you as a church are involved in. Maybe some of those may be the distraction from what you're actually supposed to be focusing on. I don't know. You have to ask that question before God. God has asked you at this point, has given you a vision. How do you take the next step along that? And I want to just add a little bit of a rider, really, because what you're doing is risky, and we're human. We don't always get it quite right in terms of what God is asking us to do. Which means we have to keep on paying attention to God. Discern when something's a distraction and when it's actually we've reached the other side of the field and God sends us back in a different direction. But it means we have to be open to those questions. What is the risk? How do we hear Jesus? How do we walk in his footsteps? How do we learn from him? Because unlike any other teaching, this is about who Jesus is and who God is. Let me just give you a couple of final examples to explain how Christian teaching is different from any other teaching. If we were to talk of an ancient Greek philosopher, Plato, we could talk about his life. He lived before Jesus. He shaped much of Western thought in many ways. He spoke essentially, not in this language, but how you live the good life. And his teaching, his philosophy has carried on. But we don't look back at Plato and think who he was, whether he was moral or ethical. We just take his ideas, and they're woven into much of the way we live. Or think about Karl Marx. His teaching has shaped political theory. It shaped Marxism. But we don't talk about Karl Marx. We talk about Marxism and its ideologies and philosophy. They've shaped people and things, but the person who started them off is almost irrelevant to us. It is a way of thinking. Christianity is not a way of thinking. 
It's about a way of walking. A way of walking with the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.